It's not uncommon for a teenager to experience growing pains, an awkward phase where everything just feels wrong. But they ride it out, sometimes with the help of their parents. But not all kids have a support system, and home is the last place they'll turn to for help. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we'll talk with a couple of young people who left home with no desire to return. 23-year-old Gabriel left home at the age of 16. I had left because I was in an unstable house. A vet was living with her aunt and uncle. They kicked her out when she was 15. Because I wasn't doing good in school, I was failing classes, running away from home. New York City officials say it's hard to pinpoint just how many runaway and homeless youth are on the streets. But the city's assistant commissioner for vulnerable youth, Susan Haskell, says they know a good number of them identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Something close to 20% of the young people who enter a crisis shelter report to DYCD that they're LGBTQ. Now, this is a large number. I know that the mayor not too long ago set up a commission to look into the needs of these individuals, correct? That's right. What's the status of that? The commission was established in, um, I believe it was the end of October, and the 24 members have been working very intensely um, over about the last seven months to develop a final report that will take it will basically advise the city on what recommendations to take to improve services and take them to the next level for runaway and homeless youth who are LGBTQ. I know a lot of these kids express concern about their safety even when they go into shelters. Is that something that the city is looking into? We're certainly listening to what young people said. We've had two public hearings and a number of youth forums, and we're taking everything that is reported to us by young people very seriously. The program area that I'm responsible for, Runaway and Homeless Youth Services, have done an amazing job. We have a lot of funded groups and community-based organizations who are very experienced with LGBTQ, and they've really provided a very welcoming environment. But we are listening to what um, young people are saying about their experiences across the city. Do you get the sense, Susan, that most... Most of the runaways here in New York City are from the five boroughs, or are they from all over the place? You know, surprisingly, to some, most of the young people that we serve and who access services are from the five boroughs of New York City. There's a very small percentage that come from outside, even though, you know, New York City is considered a magnet, and some young people do, you know, hope to find their dreams here when they're in an uncomfortable situation at home. The true numbers of young people who access services is very small, the number that comes outside. We have young people from Brooklyn, from Queens, from the Bronx, from Staten Island. We really see them representing the whole city. Here we are in a city of 8 million plus. What do you do to go out there and reach out to kids who are not willing to get the help themselves? Recognizing that fact, we made a really important move back in 2007. We expanded the number of drop-in centers from one in the Bronx to five, one in every borough of New York City. So we realized that, you know, a young person in trouble in Brooklyn was not really likely to find their way up to the hub in the Bronx. So we've got five options for them to come to drop-in center. With city council support, we were able to provide three additional hubs. In addition to helping young people find the drop-in centers, we have a funded street outreach team. It's operated by by a group called Safe Horizons, very experienced with uh, street homeless youth, and they have outreach teams every night of the week in either Upper Manhattan, Bronx, and Queens, or Lower Manhattan, Staten Island, and Brooklyn. They are going to areas where young people are known to congregate and trying to find 
the young person in need and, and let them know where they can get help. Does the city work at all to reunite runaways with their families? This is the utmost goal, and it was one of the reasons why it was important for us to expand the drop-in centers. We do have limited resources for residential services. We won't turn any young people away, but we know that that resource is limited. The best thing we can do is get a young person to a drop-in center, connect them with a counselor, and work to try and reunite them with their family or find another appropriate adult in their lives who can help them figure out next steps and try and avoid shelter if at all possible. I would imagine that because it might be unsafe for these kids to return home, you really need to get to the bottom of the situation as to why they left in the first place. Absolutely. If it's, you know, looked at like the young person really does need a place to stay and they're they're concerned about being home. Family conflict, by the way, is the number one reason young people seek services in our continuum of care. They have to be assessed, and that happens at the crisis shelter level. And what we're looking for is to see if there is any alleged abuse. And of course, we'd call that right away into the central state registry. But even if it isn't abusive, it often is a situation that you know needs to be improved, could be improved. So working those situations out, finding out what's safe and what's not safe, that is the primary goal of the crisis shelter. What would you say, Susan, is the hardest part of your job? I think the idea of a young person being in a situation at home who uh, really needs help not getting it is the is the hardest part to think about. Uh, we need young people who are in trouble to seek services, and we've also initiated this past year um, through DYCD's Youth Connect, which is, includes a hotline and a bunch of social media outreach efforts. We've implemented a strong Facebook page, a MySpace page, and an e-blast to let young people know, like, if you're in trouble, if it's a situation that feels unsafe, if you're, you know, if there's sexual abuse, domestic violence, come out, get help, let us assess the situation and provide the services that are needed. Susan Haskell, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Susan Haskell is New York City's Assistant Commissioner for Vulnerable Youth. In 1997, a gay and transgender youth named Ollie Fournay was murdered in Harlem. Having lived on the streets himself, Fournay was an advocate for other LGBT runaway and homeless youth. Five years after his death, a center for LGBT youth opened in his name and is said to be the largest organization of its kind in the nation. I spoke with the group's executive director and one of its young residents. My name is Carl Siciliano, and I'm the founder and the executive director of the Ali Fernay Center. And my name is Gabriel. I'm actually a resident within the Ali Fernay Center. We were founded in 2002. My desire to start an organization like this was really very much stimulated by the death of Ali Fernay. Help me to understand why these kids are on the street. Are they getting kicked out? Are they leaving voluntarily? You know, recently we polled the young people living in our housing um, and found that about 75% of them described being subjected to violence or harassment in their homes because of the fact that they were gay. I mean, they didn't all say that they were kicked out specifically because they were gay, although very often that is the case. But they, they overwhelmingly described, you know, not being accepted, not being understood, not being embraced the same way that they used to be. Many talked about being subjected to violence and abuse, a lot of verbal harassment, a lot of physical abuse. But what what I see over and over and over again is is it's just being gay is extraordinarily challenging for family. When, when a family has a great gay child, it's just extraordinarily challenging for them. And it really disrupts the parenting process, and it really disrupts 
the kind of care and support that young people should be receiving from their families. So, you know, sometimes the kids are coming because more because of poverty than because of, 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 of their sexual orientations per se. But, but it, it, there's a very strong correlation between the young person being gay and their being on the streets. And look, the fact that 40% of the homeless youth in our country are LGBT, it's no accident. I mean, obviously, the fact that they're being LGBT is, is, is creating this kind of exodus where they're no longer safe in their homes. Gabriel, tell us your story. First of all, how old are you? Uh, I'm 23. And how long ago did you leave your home? Oh, uh, about seven years ago. Seven years ago, July 10th will be the seventh year. And what's your story? Why did you leave home? I had left because I was in an unstable house. Uh, my family, when I came out to them, they said that they would work with me. First they said they were okay with it, and then they said that you know that they needed to change it. So um, they went through so many different measures to try to change it. Uh, they approached me religiously. I was beaten every time I didn't masturbate to this heterosexual pornography. Just brutalized. So I eventually ran away once, um, and I didn't come back. And when my grandfather, the first time he came back to get me, uh, he said he came to get me because he needed to help me. He wanted to, I guess, release the demon out of my body. And actually being introduced to girls um, in an attempt to allow me to, I guess, experiment with the heterosexual lifestyle after a while, I became severely depressed and suicidal. And then eventually, I guess, my family started to give up, uh, and I was kicked out. And now you're here at the Ali Fournay Center. How's life? It's easier. Um, Not ideal. I mean, you know, I would like to be able to be more independent, seeing as I've been bouncing from shelter to foster care to shelter. But I'm working. Uh, I currently live with very productive people. Uh, We're all working, going to school. So it, it doesn't have that homeless, lost feel. Uh... At the Alifornia Center, uh, under their transitional living program, I, I'm able to discuss my ideas, I'm able to express what my goals are, and I'm able to do that and know that I will get constructive criticism back. Um, right now, I'm a student going to school full-time. What are you studying? I'm studying journalism and political science. I'm a dual major uh, at Brooklyn College. And I work at a Starbucks here in the city, uh, so try to keep a pretty busy uh, schedule. Does your family know where you are now? You're 23 years old. You left home at 16. Right. Um, the funny thing is that I haven't spoken to them in these past seven years, but I, I guess everybody's got Facebook. So uh, my siblings found me on Facebook, and uh, they've contacted me, and uh, they've told me that, you know, my father wants to know how I'm doing, uh, my uh, maternal grandparents want to know how I'm doing. So I guess we're slowly reconnecting now, which has caught me by surprise. Carl, how many stories like Gabriel's have you heard over the years? I would imagine countless. I've gotten to a point in my life where having done this work for over 15 years, uh, I've just, you know, met thousands of, of, of LGBT youth who you know, have gone through family rejection. Um, I mean, there, there are aspects of Gabriel's story that, that are 
he, he's one of the more intelligent and accomplished young people that I've had the, the pleasure to, to, to meet. So, you know, in that way, I, I would say he stands out a little bit. But in terms of his family not being able to cope and the way in which his, his home life became intolerable, that's, that's a very, sadly, that's a very common story. Something that I feel very strongly about is that we, the adult gay community, have an obligation and a responsibility to do something about it. We've created this movement where we say, come out, come out, come out, come out, right? You know, and I, I think that when we started the gay rights movement in the late 60s and 70s, it was an adult thing. You know, it was adults who were coming out, and, and, and homosexuality was seen as an adult issue. And it's not. You know, it's like by the time you're at 13 or whatever, you know what turns you on. And now that there's so much openness and so much, you know, it's, it's more prevalent. People are more conscious of it. The young people are conscious of it. Their parents are more plugged in to the fact that a, a teenager could be gay. And we just have to acknowledge that we live in a very divided society, and there are thousands of families and parents who are not able to be families and parents to, to their gay kids. And, and we have to create structures that protect our young people and give them a chance. And, you know... I really feel like if we, the LGBT community, were doing our job, this wouldn't be a homeless issue. It shouldn't be a homeless issue. It's like if, if, if parents are unwilling to provide homes to their young people for, because they're gay, then we, the gay community, have to create structures that provide those homes. And so, you know, that's really what we try to do at the Alec Fernand Center. Gabriel, how much do you talk about these issues with your peers? Quite often, um, because I find that uh, I encounter a lot of people who a lot of gay people who aren't fully accepting of themselves. And I feel like when you leave a home that's not so accepting of you, it makes you wonder, well, what's really wrong with you? Carl, for you, how much of this is about self-esteem building, getting these young people to believe in themselves again after they were forced out of their homes? It's huge. And, you know, I'm going to definitely agree with what Gabriel just said. You know, in, in, in our world, we call it shadiness a lot. You know, there, there's a lot of shadiness that the, the young people um, throw at each other. And I see it as internalized self-hatred. Gabriel talked about the, the environment at the Alley Frenet Center and said that it feels more, like, hopeful and productive and not like you're lost and homeless. And, I, I, you know, it made me very happy to hear him say that because that's a real priority for, for me and in terms of how we developed the Alley Frenet Center. I, I didn't want to create an environment where people felt like they were in some homeless warehouse. I, I, we, we rent apartments, like three-bedroom apartments usually. We try to rent them in, in decent neighborhoods where the young people will be safe. We try to make them look as nice as possible. And we try to, as much as possible, create like a home environment and a family environment. And, and I actually think that that environment that we create is extraordinarily therapeutic and is a very important part of the healing that these young people need to, to go through. And they definitely need that healing. I mean, I don't know how anybody, it, it's, it's a hard psychological thing to, to be a teenager and to be rejected by your family. And how many young people can you accommodate at any given time with the apartments that you have? Right now we're housing 58 youth a night. About 30 of those youth are in our emergency housing where people can stay for up to six months. And that's open to anybody who's LGBT and, and homeless between the ages of 16 and 24. And then um, we have a transitional housing program that, that Gabriel lives in, and that houses a total of 28 young people. And there they can stay for up to two years. Uh, the requirement to move in is that they work 
and you know on intake that can be you know a full-time job a part-time job it can even be an internship or a volunteer job you just have to show us that you're willing to work and then we um we while we don't require it we definitely support that the young people go to school well if they haven't graduated from high school or got a GED we require that they do that we don't we don't mandate they go to college but i think right now like 75% of the young people in the transitional are in college as as is Gabriel and we're very proud of that what percentage of the young people that you work with do you think are reunited with their families that form healthy relationships with their families over time you know, I would say that fewer than 10% move back in. But, you know, once young people are on their own and have, you know, like, I don't, I don't, you know, somebody like Gabriel who's got a job and going to school, I don't, I don't even know that he would want to. I mean, I can't speak for Gabriel, but, you know, I think I hear him say he wants his own independence. And, and, and I get that, and I think that's great and healthy. What we do see, though, is that um, as we help the young people get stable, you know, of the youth who stay with us for several years, um, like Gabriel, who, uh, I would say that we often see that they establish some kind of relationship. There's some kind of repair of the broken relationship. Gabriel, what's your one piece of advice to a young person out there who is struggling with issues like yours or similar issues at home? They're gay. They're scared. They don't know what to do. They're thinking about leaving. What do you tell them? The easiest thing that anyone can do is to search for support outside of themselves. A lot of times after you come out of a house that's not very open to you, you come out broken. I try to tell myself that I need to empower myself because if I don't feel better with myself, no one else is really going to help me. Gabriel, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Carl, thank you. Thank you very much. Carl Siciliano is the executive director of the Olive Fournay Center for LGBT Homeless Youth in New York City. Gabriel is one of the organization's residents. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're focusing our attention on runaway and homeless youth in New York City. 21-year-old Yvette is one of them. Yvette never really knew her parents. She was raised by her great-grandmother in South Carolina. When she died, Yvette moved in with her aunt and uncle, who kicked her out and told her to go live with her grandmother in New York City. That didn't last long. Yvette's been on her own since the age of 15 and currently lives at Covenant House in Manhattan. So where are you from, Yvette? I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. And how long have you been in New York City? Um, five and a half years. What brought you to New York City? Before I arrived to New York City, I was living with my aunt and uncle. So after my great-grandmother died, they told me I had to come up here. And how long did you stay with your aunt and your uncle? For about a couple months. Why did you leave their home? Because after my great-grandmother died, I started feeling like, I don't know, I was really bad and I couldn't deal with it. So they told me I had to come up here. And why did you leave your aunt and uncle's home? Because I wasn't doing good in school, I was failing classes, running away from home. So did they ask you to leave? Yeah, they did. I actually left the next day. And where did you go? Here you are, 15 years old, in New York City. (laughs) I came up here with my grandmother. So you went to stay with your grandmother? Yeah, I was living with my grandmother. Okay. How did you end up here at the Covenant House? Um, Actually, my grandmother kicked me out. I wasn't doing good in school. I was being bad, and um, I went to school one day, and I started crying, so the school brought me here at Covenant House. 
Okay, so you never actually lived on the streets of New York City. You, you fortunately found this place. Um, I actually did live on the streets for a couple of times because I was too afraid to come to a shelter. I didn't know what a shelter was like. Where were your parents in all of this? Um, I have no idea where none of my parents are right now. Um, wherever they're at, I hope, and I wish them the best. So, so you weren't raised by no. your parents? Mm-hmm. I wasn't raised by none of my parents. Were you given up as a child? Yeah, my um, mother, um, my father actually left me in the hospital. So my great-grandmother, the one that passed away, she came and got me. And you lived with her until she passed yeah. away? Yeah, I lived with her until she passed away. Then I was sent to New York City. So how old are you now? I'm 21. Okay, so six years have passed. Yeah. How has life been in the last six years? Um, actually, life has been great. I think coming to Covenant House, um, I don't know, it's, it's really been a blessing for me because now I'm working two jobs and I'm saving my money, so hopefully I can get out of here with a lot of money and stuff. What do you hope to do? What do you aspire to be? Well, I'm trying to go back to school because I would like to be a journalist or a psychiatrist. What would you say to other young people who were in your situation, 15 years old, having a difficult home life, trying to make sense of things, trying to do well in school but not doing well in school? What do you say? Um, well, I'll just tell them that I was. everybody goes through it. Everybody has their ups and downs. Just don't give up. Just try to stick in the end, and hopefully it pays off at the end. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this performance that you're about to do. What's that all about? Mm, it's a Broadway show. Um, I'm really excited. We did cover Idol here, so we basically had to practice, and everybody had to go on stage and just sing. And I guess whoever they thought sounds good, they picked them to be on the Broadway show. So, so this is a benefit for the Covenant House, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you will be performing. Um, I'll be performing Molly Cyrus the Climb. All right. About anything else that we didn't talk about that you'd want to share with us? Um, no, thank you. <laughs> Well, I thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you so much. I can almost see it, that dream I'm dreaming, but there's a voice inside my head saying you'll never reach it. Yvette is 21 years old. She lives at Covenant's house in Manhattan and is climbing her way to a better future. Lost with no direction. My faith is shaken, but I... Gotta keep trying Gotta keep my head held high There's always gonna be another mountain I'm always gonna wanna make it move Always gonna be in a new battle Sometimes I'm gonna have to lose It ain't about how fast I get there Ain't about what's waiting on the other side Scott Prendergast knows a thing or two about runaway and homeless youth in New York City. He's a retired NYPD detective turned private eye and has spent countless hours working to get kids safely off the streets. Scott, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. No problem. You're a retired NYPD detective with more than 20 years of service. You're now a private investigator. What was your experience with runaway youth when you were on the force? Well, I came on the police department in New York City in 1985. I was assigned originally as a rookie on foot patrol to Washington Square Park and Tompkins Square Park. I would think at that time there were quite a few runaways in New York City. Those two parks were filled with them. Basically, the runaways at that time were kids from all around the country 
would uh, gravitate to New York City, and then once they got there, they would be in in those two parks. That was like a gathering area for teenagers. How much of a priority would you say runaways are for the police department here in New York City? The runaway situation may have changed a little bit since I was uh, on patrol in uniform. When I became a detective and I was uh, retired in 2005, the runaway situation seemed to me to uh, change up a little bit. Back then, when I was a rookie cop, there was more just running away from home. You'd find them hanging out in the street, doing drugs, drinking, uh, bouncing around, you know, going to rock concerts and stuff like that. Now it seems like a lot of the runaways get caught up in the prostitution and they're run by pimps and madams and stuff like that. So the uh, public morals division of the police department I believe, gets more involved with the runaways now. How well, Scott, do you think police are trained to spot runaways and deal with these kinds of situations? I don't know about the training, but police are just like any other uh, profession. Some police officers are very sharp guys and girls, and they can spot something's just wrong, uh, whether it be a criminal selling drugs or looking to mug somebody or a runaway pretending to be older than they really are. A lot of cops just have a street sense that they can feel something's not right, and then they'll, most of them will look into it a little more, I guess. As we all know, the police department, just like every other city agency, is stretched pretty thin with resources. Would you say because of that, runaways take the back burner to other types of situations? I mean, clearly crime and other things that police have to deal with on a daily basis? They are short manpower in the police department right now. In the detective squad, once the reports are taken for a runaway, They look for the runaway for a few days, and then it gets transferred to the missing persons uh, division. And then they uh, have the responsibility to look for the runaways, but they also deal with a lot of runaways. New York City, you know, it's a big city. There's 8 million people live in in the city. So it's a lot of runaways uh, coming into the city or from the city. So they've stretched pretty thin due to uh, the manpower, I, I would believe. Well, now, as we mentioned, you're a private detective, and you still deal with runaways on occasion, right? You're equipped to handle that kind of work. Yes, I am. Now, what do you do yourself when faced with a runaway? The advice I would give to uh, parents is when the child runs away, immediately, you know, you got to go to the police, definitely, and try and, you know, make sure that they're handling it the right way, stay on top of them because they are busy, so just you know, politely remind them with a phone call, you know, once a day at least. If the parents think that their children are prone to running away, there's a lot of precautions that they can take and a lot of things they can do before and after the kid runs away. Such as? My suggestion would be keep up-to-date pictures uh, of your kids. Most teenagers today, unlike in the 80s and the early 90s when I was on patrol, most kids today have cell phones and have computers and have Facebook accounts and MySpace accounts, that can actually help the parents track the kids down, give that information to the police. And my suggestion also is do not shut off the child's phone. Don't shut it off if you're upset. Sometimes the parents, there might be some type of fighting going on between the parents and the child, and the punishment will be to shut the phone off. Now, that's fine if you don't have any inkling that the child might turn into a runaway. If the kid's going to be a runaway, it's better to keep the phone on. If you knowingly harbor a runaway, if someone knew a kid ran away and allowed them to stay at their house, didn't contact the parents, can you get in trouble for that? 
yes, I had cases like that when I was detective. And the uh, I've had, uh, let's say, a f- uh, example, uh, a female runaway was staying with her boyfriend. They're both underage. They're both 15 or something like that. The boyfriend is harboring her in the house. He's underage. Can he be arrested? Uh, yeah, it would just be a family court offense. It's not a serious crime. But the parents, if they know that she's a runaway, they can be charged with endangering the welfare of a minor and things like that. If those parents believe the runaway story, that runaway is being abused at home, then they should call the police, not just hide them. I'm curious, as a private investigator, how much do you have to work with the NYPD on cases like this, or do you? If somebody has the resources to hire a private investigator, they can maybe speak to the police because the parents are upset. And lots of times the communication doesn't always work right between the parents and the police. So if a private investigator can go speak to the police, it might make things run a little smoother. So that's one advantage. And as you mentioned, though, of course, for the parents, they need to have the resources in order to invest in someone like yourself to get the job done. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a business. It's like any, it's just the same way they go to work every day. The private investigator goes to work every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, some private investigators are a little more easygoing uh, than others on the rates, depending on what the situation is. So maybe calling around and seeing how flexible the private investigator might be. Don't just go with the first person that you deal with. Okay, Scott, I thank you so much for your time. No problem. Yeah. And it go a little something. Scott Prendergast is retired from the NYPD and is now working as a private investigator. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producers Skylar Srivastava and Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. Now little Lisa's only nine years old. She's trying to figure out why the world is so cold. Why she's all alone and they never met her family. Mama's always gone and she never met her daddy. Part of her is missing and nobody will listen. Mama's on drugs, getting up in the kitchen, bringing home.